0: You're listening to a sermon from the Pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well,
1: turn with me, if you would, to the book of Matthew. We're diverging for one week because we're opening up nominations and we felt it would be important for us to consider this text. So Matthew chapter 20, you'll find this on page 825 of the Pew Bible. And we'll be reading together chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Hear the word of God. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father." as a ransom for many. Well, in this passage, Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And our Lord is pressing on toward the terrible baptism of suffering that he would endure on our behalf. Through his foreknowledge, he knew what awaited him at the cross, Hanging there in agony and shame, he would endure the infinite weight of God's wrath. And this he would do on behalf of all of those who would trust him for salvation. Perhaps you can think of a time when you had such forewarning of something you dreaded. Perhaps a dangerous journey, a difficult conversation... A painful chastisement as a child, I can remember those. (laughs) And the suffering of foreknowledge can often be as painful as the event itself. Well, Jesus knew. And on the way, the Lord Jesus pulled aside the twelve to instruct them more carefully. It was the third time that Christ predicted his own impending crucifixion. And this announcement was the most clear and explicit of the three. The Sanhedrin, he told them, the highest court in Israel would formally condemn Jesus to death. And the Gentile rulers would then mock him and scourge him and crucify him. And this was utterly contrary to all expectations of the twelve disciples. This was a prediction of a weak Messiah who would be clouded in both shame and scandal. How do we reconcile this with the notion of restoring the glory of the Davidic kingdom? The disciples conceived of an earthly kingdom to rival the Roman Empire, and they might have said something like this to themselves. We thought that he would come to conquer our enemies and to get rid of the Roman scourge. And many believe, and I tend to agree with them, that this was the idea that motivated Judas to betray Jesus. You see, he wanted to force our Lord's hand in overthrowing the Romans. Jesus, you're not doing it. I'm going to force it on you. And when Christ allowed himself to be condemned, Judas despaired of life itself. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But in this prediction, Jesus was not speaking figuratively or metaphorically or allegorically. He could not have been more plain in predicting his own crucifixion. His life and death were dramatic exhibitions of humility and servanthood. As he would say, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And our Lord teaches and demonstrates that true greatness is through self-denying servanthood. And on the surface, doesn't it seem like an oxymoron? Greatness through service? Interestingly, Matthew juxtaposes this prediction of the cross with the mother's presumptuous request for her sons. That's not by accident. This was Salome, who, as she approached Jesus, gave the customary bow. And I think it was a sincere expression of reverence for his regal authority. After all, she recognized his kingship, which is why she made this entreaty. I want these two to sit at your right hand and your left. Doesn't it strike you as odd? It's as if they've missed everything he said about suffering. All they can think about is his throne, his glory, and the day of his power. And Salome and her two sons don't seem to have any clue as to the path to glory. They apparently did not yet realize that the road to glory is through suffering. Neither these men nor their indulgent mother had any idea of the cost involved. And Jesus tells them in so many words that to reign with him means to suffer with him. And so the question Jesus poses in response, I think, was intended to properly realign their thoughts. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And the expression of drinking a cup was familiar as a metaphor for suffering. We find it being used throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 75, which was read earlier. In the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. That's a cup. Or Isaiah 51. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. So, the cup that Jesus drank was filled and overflowing with the fury of God's wrath. And that cup which he drank on behalf of sinners serves as a pattern to believers. Isn't that what he's saying to the disciples? Paul says, It's been granted to you. That's the language of a gift. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should suffer. For his sake. The way to glory is through suffering. Through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. And notice the brash confidence of ignorance. Salome and the two disciples had no idea what they were saying. Jesus said, are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And they said to him, we're able. No question. And the thoughts of greatness in the kingdom that overthrows Rome was appealing. But they did not yet understand again that the way to greatness is through service and self-sacrifice. And so Jesus says to them ominously, you will drink my cup. You will share in my suffering and you will be hated by the world on my account. They would not endure the depth of Christ's anguish, but they, and they would not atone for sin, but they would follow Jesus in suffering trials for the sake of the kingdom. In fact, what we find out is that James was the very first martyr put to death by the sword in Acts chapter 12. And his brother John, one of the two, he was persecuted and exiled, and history tells us that he was boiled in oil. I'm not sure which is worse. And so the contrast between Jesus and his disciples highlights for us the sin of worldly ambition. Jesus was concerned for others. The disciples were concerned for themselves. They were caught up in the quest for position and honor and power and authority and how utterly contrary to the godly, selfless determination of Jesus Christ. You remember how he had set his face like flint toward Jerusalem where he would lay down his life. And he did so for a kingdom not of this world ordained from the depths of eternity. And every living stone of this kingdom was chosen and fitted together by God the Father, each one chosen according to his secret counsel and sovereign good pleasure, and each one redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And these two disciples and their mother at this point were behaving like people of the world. They wanted the positions of honor, power, and prestige even over the ten. <laughs> And we're taught the duties of equals, and they were equal, are to regard the dignity and worth of each other in giving honor to go one before another. And the sins, usurping preeminence one over another. Well, when the other ten got wind of this discussion, it says they were indignant. And the self-confidence and selfish ambition of the two caused dissension in the ranks. The other ten were incensed at this brash attempt by the sons of Zebedee, and I think it shows that the ten were as selfishly ambitious for position as the two. Their indignation was due not so much to a sense of fair play as to being outmaneuvered. I think they were mad because James and John had thought of it first. According to Luke 18.24, this led to a dispute about who was greatest among the disciples. A dispute. And so Jesus huddles them together in order to train them in the way of greatness. The members of his kingdom must not display the same ruthless ambition as the world. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, meaning that the natural man has this innate propensity to exalt himself over his fellow man. Sinful man naturally is self-centered, self-absorbed, sinfully ambitious, and what motivates him and her From the moment of birth is the opposite of love. And Jesus says that such a disposition is incompatible with membership in his kingdom. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And can you imagine what they're thinking at this point? What kind of kingdom is this? It seems so contrary to experience. The way of the world is nothing like this. And the world's servants aren't great. They're nondescript. They're obscure. Who cares who they are? As long as they serve. Where on this green earth can we find anything even close to this? And with thoughts like these and their minds, the disciples heard those words of Jesus even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ is the paradigm. That's where you find it on this green earth. He is the supreme example of greatness, the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, becoming man. And he did not come with pomp and circumstance. He did not occupy a throne on earth. He had no wealth, no political power, no prestige, no place to lay his head. Jesus humbled himself in his conception and birth by being made of a woman of poor estate. He humbled himself in his life by subjecting himself to the very law that he ordained and he conflicted with all the indignities of this world. And he humbled himself in his death, having been betrayed by Judas and forsaken by his disciples, scorned and rejected by the world, condemned by Pilate, and then tormented by those Roman soldiers. And agonizing over the terrors of death and the powers of darkness and bearing the full weight of God's wrath, he laid down his life. And so his entire life and death were spent serving God and saving man. And so we look to Jesus then for the perfect example of what Christian character should be. It involves a voluntary renunciation of everything that conflicts with the glory of God and the good of others. It doesn't mean that we renounce ourselves so that we intentionally become martyrs. It doesn't imply some sort of monkish asceticism that forbids all earthly comforts. You know, the monks displayed a show of self-denying service, but they lacked its spirit. A man can deny himself a thousand pleasures and all for the sake of personal gain. Because each one of us longs for respectability and notoriety and religious rank and privilege. So you can enjoy God's bounty and still live for His glory and others' good. The real question has to do with what occupies the supreme place in your heart. What motivates you most powerfully? What inspires you most deeply? Are you influenced primarily by self-love, self-seeking, self-enrichment? You know, Jesus demonstrates for us the best way, and it's the way of his kingdom. It's the road of service and self-sacrifice, and that leads to greatness. And so as Christians, I think we're taught here to strive to be characterized by principles that are higher than ourselves. Our highest aspirations and our deepest loyalty should be for the eternal kingdom, because he tells us seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you our wills which are so naturally rigid they need to bend to God's will and our interests which are so naturally self-centered need to be focused upon his interests The good of our neighbors must take precedence over our earthly desires. And insofar as you and I have this kind of disposition, we have proof of grace. You don't have that disposition, disposition, there's no proof of grace. No duty is so hard that you and I should be unwilling to fulfill. No sin is so sweet that we should be unwilling to forsake it. Christ has become the center of our universe and the goal of our lives. And it was this kind of godly ambition that prompted Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Who would do something like that? Somebody who has Christ at the center. It's what compelled Moses to forsake the riches and the fame and the power of Egypt, the greatest country on earth at the time. It's what pressed King David into repeatedly sparing the life of King Saul because he was the Lord's anointed. It's what drove the Apostle Paul to labor incessantly among the Gentile world. And it's what motivated our Lord himself to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Or as Paul puts it, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And that's the standard. That's the standard by which you and I evaluate our lives and the lives of our leaders. Until we draw our last breath, you and I are going to struggle with pride, jealousy, love of preeminence. But by the new birth and the grace of God begins the process of rooting out these sinful weeds. And so is the principle of self denying service that which permeates your conduct and mine? Which do you think of or pursue most? Let me ask you your interest or your duty? Be honest. When facing a conflict with duty, it's inconvenient with your interests. Are you able to renounce your own ease, profit, Pleasure, husbands, do you honestly love your wife as Christ loved the church? Before you answer, think about the way in which Jesus loved his bride. Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, mind you, here was no mere man. He was the son of God and he gave himself up for our sins. What can your wife or mine possibly do that is worse than what we did to him? Nevertheless, he loved us. He gave himself for us. He died to atone for our sins. Do you consider first your wife when tempted by earthly goods and comforts? You know, oftentimes the world jokes about men being just bigger boys with bigger toys. Your first earthly duty is to love and cherish her who shares your name. Now, let me just say this I do not claim to be good at this. I fail at this every single day. I'm not here to dwell on my failures. I'm here to proclaim the word of God. That's the only reason I can say this. But brothers, with me, examine yourself to see whether or not you're answering the call to servanthood to your wife. And remember this, your example, good or bad, will do more for your kids than anything you say. Wives, do you sincerely respect your husband as the church respects Christ? Does fulfilling this sacred duty take precedence over getting your own way? When the husband's conduct doesn't measure up, what's your first inclination? Do you complain, murmur, nag, consider mutiny? Or do you consider the greater good? Peter says, and this is very difficult, You are to win them without a word. No complaining. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you're answering the call to servanthood. Children, and there are many of them here. Children, this is you. Do you seek to honor the Lord by obeying the parents that he gave you? When they say no, you know, the gift of no. What is your first reaction? Is it to grumble and grouse? Let me ask you, who are we to gripe and complain about God's wise and holy providence? Because God placed him in charge with delegated authority for your good. And he calls you to obey your parents in the Lord. And that's how you express faith, children. Obedience to parents is one of the most important ways for a child to love Christ. Examine yourself to see whether or not you are answering the call to servanthood. Parents can't leave you out. Do you strive to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? You know something, the rulers of this world lord it over those who are subject to them. Is this the way you govern your home? Do you provoke them to anger? Do you exasperate their souls? Are you in the habit of abusing that parental authority which God has put upon you? They're children, pieces of yourselves to be treated with tenderness and love. Yes, they do need training. They do need discipline. But it should always be mingled with love. Always. Don't be overly severe, don't be excessively rigid, don't be unduly stern or uncompromising. Examine yourselves by the standard of Christ and ask yourself, are you serving your children? Finally, in the church, the standard of servanthood must be applied to those who are to be ordained. And Paul gives us various qualifications for men who serve as elders and deacons. You know what those are. They're to be seasoned in the faith, theologically orthodox, godly in character, sober-minded, self-controlled, peaceable, effective managers of the home. You can see that in your bulletin, right? But behind and underneath that truth, those qualifications, is the principle of servanthood. In line with Jesus' teaching and his example, all are called to be servants. Do you remember the night in which Jesus was betrayed? When he performed that menial duty of washing dirty feet? It was a very solemn and serious act of humble messianic service. And he said, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. And I believe what he was doing was giving us a figurative sign of humble service that we're to follow. We should be willing to stoop to the most menial of duties and service to one another. You know something, and this is kind of an odd analogy, but bear with me. If there was a stranger from this world coming to earth and they watched me cleaning up after my dog, they'd wonder which one is the master. It's a menial job, but it's one that I'm glad to perform out of love for my dog. Well, the same principle must be at work in the church, especially with officers. Jesus gives us public men who are designated to illustrate this publicly, service. This is how one should regard us, says Paul, as servants of Christ. Again, let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons. As we open nominations for office today, the trait of servanthood ought to be at the forefront of your thinking. The greatest in this world have the highest rank and the most money and the greatest power and fame. The greatest in the kingdom promotes the glory of Christ and serves their fellow man. Worldly greatness consists in conquering, gaining, and winning. Kingdom greatness consists of giving, sacrificing, and serving. So as we open up nominations, one great question before you is to whether or not a man is willing to serve. And by that, I don't mean to occupy the office. I mean to answer the call to servanthood. Does he have a servant's heart? Is he humble? Does he love the brethren? Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You can observe this. You can see it in his daily behavior. You've watched him. After all, every Christian is called to serve. Officers are to be examples. So even before his ordination, such a man should show signs of servanthood. And he must not only show signs of it, but himself be an example of it. And don't think... That simply putting him in office will cultivate this kind of servant's heart. That doesn't work that way. If he's not serving now, most likely he'll not serve then. Do not nominate somebody because of personality or position in society or prestige or popularity, which is the worst of all. You must first determine whether or not he has a heart of a servant. Second, you must evaluate him on the basis of scriptural qualifications. Is he qualified? Third, you have to have a conversation with him to see if he's willing. Have to do it. And then and only then may you put his name down as a candidate for office because this is not a nomination for some worldly office, although those are important and they have their place. But this is a nomination for office in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bride of Christ. And it's a high privilege and it's a solemn duty, and so we dare not take this process lightly. Christ did not wash those filthy feet as a mere courtesy to his friends. He taught us by his own example how we, and especially officers, are to behave. Men nominated for office must meet the qualifications and be servants. That's what we are, servants. If you can't think of anyone that fits that description, or you don't see a man that's qualified, then don't nominate. You're better off not to nominate anyone than to nominate someone who shouldn't be nominated. Because you and I both will be called to account for the way we treat this process. As the king and the head of the church, Jesus will require us to be forthcoming. Why did you nominate him? Did you carefully consider his life, his qualifications? Did you observe him and compare him with scriptural standards? Did you go by worldly standards? Was he a servant? Was he qualified? You know something? Jesus has given us this tremendous privilege of electing those who serve in office, and Christ himself is the pattern. He never commanded a duty without giving us a demonstration. Did you ever notice that? As a leader, he never said, go do that. He said, come follow me. That's a true leader. He's unique among teachers, many of which today teach, and they don't do. Now, I know we're all inconsistent to a degree. We all are. But at least elders and deacons ought to be striving to be examples of service. And Jesus taught us by word and deed that we ought to serve one another. May he enable us to follow his example, and may he give us men who will serve, amen. Let's pray together. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for the perfect example of our Lord Jesus Christ. How often we are like the two who sought to usurp preeminence over their brothers. And how often we're like the 10 who were unjustly indignant because they were outmaneuvered. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and pray that his spirit will be within us and enable us to live lives of service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue our worship by turning in our hymnals to number 500. Father, I know that all my life, please stand with me as we sing hymn 500. Thank you Please be seated. By faith, we as Christians are united to Christ, and on that basis, we enjoy real spiritual communion with God through him. And the Lord appointed this supper to serve as a means to that end. The bread and cup represent the body and blood of God's Son who willingly offered up himself as a sacrifice to atone for sins. And as we commemorate his death in this manner, the Holy Spirit graciously exerts his powerful influence so that we have real fellowship with the Lord. God pours forth his Spirit upon us and we pour forth our hearts to him and we know that communion with God does not consist only of joys and comforts, because there is as much real communion in the sanctifying and humbling influences of his spirit as in those cheering and refreshing effects of his power. At this table, in other words, the suffering and the weak and the afflicted and the downcast Christian may commune with the Father and his Son as much As the Christian who is strong and confident and not in pain. What matters is not how we feel, whether we're happy or sad, but what God promised, what Christ accomplished, and what His Spirit is applying to our souls by His gracious power. That's what's important. So let's partake knowing that in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, adversity or prosperity, God is present to bless and fellowship with us His children through Jesus Christ. And having said that, let me read of its institution from Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So if you have been baptized in the triune name, if you've professed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you are a communicant member in good standing of any evangelical church, That is to say, any church that believes and proclaims salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, this supper is freely offered to you for your spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. But I have to say this morning that if that doesn't describe you, we're not trying to be unnecessarily exclusivistic. But this is for the family of God. And if those three things don't describe you, you're not part of it yet. So this is not for you today, but is an opportunity for you to consider what it is that keeps you from coming, and to resolve that as quickly as possible, because as Harry Reader and Tim Keller demonstrate for us, man knows not his time. And for those who are too young to remember his death, or to examine themselves, or to discern the Lord's body, they're not to come at this time. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Lord's Supper. What a wonderful seal you've appointed. We thank you that it commemorates the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest servant the world has ever seen. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will use this to strengthen the faith of your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.